to him. Second Kings chapter number 7 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we shall die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. When they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight, and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their line. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then they said one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city. And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied, and tents, the tents as they were. I want you to look back with me in verse number 3 at the question the lepers asked. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity. Now, Lord, help us this morning to approach your word seriously. Lord, I pray that your Spirit, as He applies the Word of God to our hearts, that He not be denied, but He would be given access to our lives. Father, that we would yield to Him, that we would be soft and malleable as He seeks to work in our lives. Father, I do not know the heart's condition of those that are here. I do not even know my own heart, for it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. But Father, You are the one that searches the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, Father, I'm asking You to examine me this morning. Lord, I I don't want to examine myself. I'd fail. But I'm asking You to search me and to know me and to see if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. And, Father, that as You reveal it to me through Your Word, I pray that You give me the strength to surrender. And, Father, to get my heart in the condition it needs to be and to allow You to do in me the work that would please You the most. 
Lord, I love you this morning, and I pray that you would teach me to love you more. I ask all these things now in the precious and effectual name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2 Kings chapter number 7, we have a scene of tragedy set before us. The kingdom of Israel, and particularly the city of Samaria, has been laid siege by the Syrians. And as this story is laid before us, God turns the camera, pans the picture, if you will, onto four leprous men that are sitting outside of the gate of Samaria and the conversation that they have one to another. It's interesting to me that all the folks dying in the city, none of them saw a truth here. But four leprous men that are sitting without the gate, they saw a truth here and they grabbed hold of it. Isn't that just like the Lord and just like the Word of God? The folks that are the most pitiful, it seems sometimes, the folks that are in the most awful condition, it seems, are the ones that can see the truth of the life that they're living and the reality that's set before them. But oftentimes those that think they have the safety of the walls of the city, they have trouble seeing the condition that they're really in. And they ask a question one to another. They sit for a moment and they think about their current condition. Let me tell you something. You won't get any help until you're willing to face and think about the condition that you're in. As long as you're living in denial about how bad things are, they won't get any better. But if you'll stop and think about things for what they are, you might find you can get some help. These lepers chose to sit and think about their situation. And they came to a conclusion. And their conclusion was that they were dying no matter where they were at. And so they make the decision to go and throw themselves at the mercy of the Syrians and hope that maybe they'll save them alive. But when they get there, they find an unusual scene set before them. The Lord has driven all the Syrians out, and all the tents are there, and all the gold is there, and all the silver is there, and all the food is there, and they find themselves in the midst of a bounty. But as we read this passage, I'm struck that there is a parallel here for the condition of the lost sinner in the world that we live in today. I want us to walk through this passage and look at a few things this morning. And if the Lord will help us, I want to preach on the logic of these lepers. As we begin this passage, it opens with an unusual prophecy. Now you say, what's unusual, preacher, about folks being able to afford food to buy? Well, have you been to the grocery store? Amen. Amen. But they were worse off in their day than even we're at in our day. I mean, they weren't worried about paying three, four dollars for a loaf of bread, and they weren't worried about filling the gas tank up. But if you read chapter number six, you'll find that this siege had grown so weary and so fierce and so effective that the children of Israel had came to a time where literally they were practicing cannibalism to try to survive. The Bible gives us some statistics here about what things went for in the inflation problem, and I'm not going to go into them. But a vivid picture is set before us in a conversation that takes place between two women. It says back in chapter number 6 that these, each of these women had a child. And they made an agreement one with another that on that first night they would eat one woman's child, and on the next night they would eat the other woman's child. And the woman whose child they ate the first night comes to the king and says, King, you're not going to believe what this woman did to me. She promised that if we ate my son the first night, then the next night we could eat her son, and we've already eaten my son, and now she's hidden her son, and we've got a problem that you need to fix. You know, the thing that is so tragic is the sense of normalcy with which she approaches the king. 
She doesn't approach him and say, my child is dead. She approaches him and says, she cheated me, and you need to exact justice and judgment on her. The Bible says the king weeps and weeps. You know, that's what the devil does to the sinner. The devil has a way of making the sinner think his tragedy and his sorrow is somehow normal. Can I tell you something? God's desire for every single man, woman, and child born into this world is not that they live in the depth and darkness and bondage of sin. It's not that they learn just to go along and get along. It's not that they learn just to live with tear-soaked pillows and with bloodshot eyes. God's desire for every single person born in this world would be that they might have life and life more abundantly. Listen, God's desire for your loved one is not just that they get by. God's desire for your loved one is not just that they get Get used to the heartache and heartbreak of sin. God's desire for you and God's desire for your loved one is that you might be saved and know the unending and joyful bliss of having the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Listen, God has greater things for humanity than humanity even has for themselves. So they're in a bad condition. I mean, things are not just bad. They're really bad. And it is in the midst of this scene that Elisha speaks. Now, Elisha is the man of God. He's the prophet of God. And if you know your Bible, you know that at this time, the prophet of God, he was the voice of God in that nation. And he makes this unusual prophecy. Look again at verse number 1. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Let me say the first thing that was unusual about this prophecy was that it was about an impossible deliverance. There was no humanly possible way that things could turn around that quick. I mean, it wouldn't matter if the kings of the Egyptians had come. Deliverance couldn't have come that quick. They couldn't have, if they had brought caravans of camels and of donkeys, if they had been pulling wagons, they couldn't have brought aid to the nation of Israel that quick. That from one day, here they are, practicing cannibalism, just trying to live, just trying to survive, just trying to make it to another meal, till the next day, they're going to have their cupboards full. Impossible. There's no way it could happen. Can I tell you that the things that are impossible with man are possible with God? And you might have thought that before you got saved. You might be here today and you might be in a lost condition needing Christ. And you might say, preacher, it's impossible. There's no way with all my heartache, there's no way God can bind up my broken heart. Preacher, there's no way with all the problems that I've got, there's no way God could love me. There's no way God could save me. Preacher, I've got a loved one and they're too broken and they're too messed up and there's no way that God can save them. It could never happen. I want it to happen, preacher, but I don't think it can happen. It's impossible for that to take place. Can I tell you that God is able? God is able. And as we read this passage, we're going to find out that this prophecy comes true. I believe it was unusual because he prophesied an impossible deliverance. But I believe it was unusual because he uh, prophesied an impending doom. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. You're telling me in one breath that an impossible deliverance was unique, but you're telling me that an impending doom was unique? Yes, because of who it was pronounced on. Now, Elisha has said that the average person going down the street Here they are starving today, and tomorrow they'll be feasting. And that's impossible. 
But it was equally impossible that what the Lord would say about this Lord on whose hand the king leaned would take place. Look what it says in verse 2. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? You know what he was saying? You know, sometimes we read the Word of God, but we don't read into the Word of God. And sometimes we take the human element out of what we're reading. There is a, a sense and a tinge of sarcasm in what he's saying. What this Lord is saying is, oh, you think that tomorrow we're going to have this. God would have to open the windows of heaven for that to take place. And he's saying God wouldn't do such a thing. And Elisha says this to him. Look at the end of verse number 2. And said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. He says to this man, on whose hand the king leaned. you know what that means? That literally means that this man, he was an advisor to the king. This is a person that when the king wanted counsel, he looked to this man. This was a man that, that lived in the royal court. This was a man that probably had every need met. This was a man that probably in a time when some were eating their children, he was probably throwing out his table scraps. And Elisha looks at this man and says, you're going to see God do this, but you won't be able to partake. You know the unique thing about the gospel? It's beautiful in the fact that it preaches that God will save any and all. But it's burdensome in this truth that there's many that will not come to Jesus Christ because of the substance of the gospel. Can I give it to you this way? Paul said that the preaching of the cross is an offense to some. It's offensive. Do you know why it's offensive to some? For the same reason that Elisha's prophecy was offensive to this man. It was offensive to this man for two reasons. One, because this man didn't think he needed anything. You know, that's one of the main reasons the preaching of the cross is offensive to people. Because they think they don't need to be saved. This man, he spurned Elisha's prophecy. You know why? Because his cupboard was full. Because his table had food on it. And he thought to himself, surely this couldn't happen. I don't need it. I don't want it to happen. Some won't come to Christ because they don't believe they need to come to Christ. It's offensive to them to think that they'd have to come to God and ask forgiveness. I mean, what did they ever do that was so wrong? Let me serve notice on you, friend. You were born a sinner just like I was born a sinner. I don't care how many good things you've done. I don't care how many bad things you've done. Like it or not, you need Calvary. You need the forgiveness of an almighty God, and that comes only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need it. I think it was offensive because he thought that he didn't need it. But I think it was offensive because it implied that he was like everyone else. I mean, he had his status, you understand. He was a man on whose hand the king leaned. This was a man that was important, that meant something. And Elisha says in one breath that the average person walking down the street, they're going to have all they need, but you won't have anything. You know, part of the reason people are offended by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is because it implies that they're like everybody else. Let me tell you something. We worry a lot about the down and outs. I think sometimes we need to worry more about the up and ends. We worry about those that are in the gutter. We worry about the bottom of the barrel, but sometimes it's the upper crust that refuses and rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because they don't like to believe they're like everyone else. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that the ground... Is level. Actually, we say that. The Bible teaches it. But the songwriter says it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. doesn't matter who you are. You need Christ's salvation. So, 
Elisha's prophecy is unusual. There's no way this could take place. It is humanly impossible for these things to happen. But what is humanly impossible is not necessarily divinely impossible. We see an unusual prophecy in the first two verses. And then God begins to tell us this story about the lepers. It's interesting that God doesn't give us a glimpse of those that are in the royal court. It's interesting that God doesn't even give us a glimpse of what's going through the king's mind. But he turns his attention to these lepers, and we are immediately faced with their unsolvable problem. Look at verse number 3. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? Now, has anybody ever said something that just discouraged you before? If ever there was something that would discourage you, we don't sing songs with this same tone to them on Sunday mornings, do we? We don't get up and sing a gospel hymn of everything's awful and vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a discouraging statement for one of these lepers to make to the other one. And yet it was a true statement. And we find the truth in it because of two things. The reason he said this, number one, was because of their decaying flesh. They were lepers. And as lepers, they knew they would be dying and dying sooner than most. They understood this truth, that the biggest problem they had was an inward problem, not an outward problem. They understood that though the Syrians rested just outside the gate, though war drums were being beaten in their very ears, that that was not their biggest worry. Their biggest worry was they had a problem on the inside, and they were dying one way or the other. I mean, I'll tell you something, it's a great day in a sinner's life when he understands that the greatest thing that he has to fear and his greatest problem is not the debt collectors. It's not the people that would seek to take away his house or take away his car. It's not the medical problems that he may encounter. It's not the tragedies that may come externally to him. But the biggest problem that the sinner has is his own sin nature. That's his biggest problem. Let me tell you something, you may fix everything else, but only Christ can fix your sin nature. You you may build a big bank account, you may get a fine job, you may get yourself in good health, but at the end of the day, if your sin problem hasn't been taken care of, then your biggest problem hasn't been taken care of. They understood that they were dying inwardly, but they understood this too. Not only their decaying flesh, but they understood the foe that lay before them. They understood the enemy at the gate. They were dying inwardly, but they were dying outwardly. They understood that it was, and listen to this carefully, just a matter of time or a matter of tragedy, but they were going to die soon one way or the other. Their decaying flesh and their dismal future said to them that no matter what they did, death was soon coming. And can I remind you of something? If you're here and lost without Christ, you may live another 40 or 50 years, and you may have lots of opportunities, and you also may not. No man's promise tomorrow. You know, in siege warfare, the principle was not necessarily to starve everyone to death in the city. The principle in siege warfare was twofold. Either to bring people to a place where their spirit was broken, to bring a city to the place where its spirit was broken so that it would surrender, or to bring it to a place of weakness where invading would become easy. You know what they discovered They understood this. As the famine was waxing sore, as people were dying, as people were eating their own children, they knew that at any moment the Syrians could come through those gates. And you know what they knew? They knew if they faced the Syrians now, 
they had a chance and a choice. But if they waited till the Syrians came for them, they had no chance and they had no choice. If we see the Syrians as a picture of death, I think that's a worthy interpretation. Then we understand this truth this morning. If you'll face death now and face your own mortality and face your own sinful condition, you have a chance and you have a choice. But if you wait till death comes for you, you have no chance. You have no choice. Right now, as you sit here, you have a say in the matter. You have a say in the matter. No one can make you come to Christ, but no one can stop you from coming to Christ. It is your choice and your choice alone. But if you continue to sit in the entering into the gate of the city and wait until finally death comes storming in for you, you'll get no choice at that point. The book of Job gives it to us this way, that how a tree, and I'm paraphrasing, how a tree falls is how it lays. You know what Job's saying? How a man dies is how he stays. You die without Christ, you'll stay without Christ. Abraham told the rich man that was in hell, said, there is a great chasm fixed between me and thee, so that they that would pass from thee to me cannot, and they that would pass from me to thence cannot. You know what he was saying? Your eternal condition is final, and there are no changes to be made. I think in this passage we see these men had an unsolvable problem. There was nothing that could fix this problem in front of them. And so they say to themselves, maybe we should go and face death right now. And you know what they found? I want us to notice not only their unsolvable problem, but look at the unbelievable prospect that they happened upon. The Bible sort of pans away. And I I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I... You're going to think I'm carnal when I say this. But, but sometimes I sort of picture the Bible in my mind. I think of it like a, like a movie almost. And I'm sort of watching these scenes unfold. And if you imagine that in chapter 6 you see this scene with these two women, and then in chapter number 7 you see this exchange between Elisha and the king and this other lord on whose hand the king leaned, and then the, the camera cuts to these four leprous men and their discussion. Well, now all of a sudden... We have a flashback sequence. You know what a flashback sequence is? Somebody raise your hand if you know what a flashback sequence All right, there you go. Suddenly we see a flashback sequence. And God shows us what happened the night before. Listen to what the Bible says in verse number 5. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. God pans the camera back to what happened the night before. It's interesting to me that the leprous men, I'm going to say a word about it in a moment, but you notice they went in the twilight. They're going to talk here in a, here in a little bit about the daybreak, and we'll talk about it. But they went in the twilight. And when they get there, they find the camp is empty. And the Bible tells us it was because of a divine intervention that had taken place. 
No one had snuck out in the middle of the night and assassinated the king of Syria. No one, no army had come and assisted them from afar, but heaven's army had come down and the, th- the sound of a thousand hoofbeats and the sound of a hundred chariots had come forth and the uh, swords of ten thousand angels had shined in the eyes of the Syrians and God confounded them and they fled for their lives. You know what happened? God did what no one else could do. God came in and defeated an enemy that no one else could defeat. God came in and did something that the Israelites could not accomplish. Man, what a picture of Calvary. You know that the battle that Christ fought on Calvary was a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. I'm aware there were physical results and consequences. And and one of the beautiful things, this isn't my message, but when you see those five miracles that took place on Calvary, you know what's unique about them is they're not just miracles, but they are earthly expressions of heavenly actions taking place. The veil was rent in heaven, so the veil was rent down here. The, The light of heaven turned His face away from God's suffering Son, and so the light went out here. But this, this is wholly unique. God is fighting a spiritual battle here, and God wins a victory that the Israelites cannot. Let me tell you something. You know what you'll find when you'll face this whole matter of sin and salvation and and the Savior and, and your own condition? You'll find that you don't have to win the battle. The battle's already been won. God did for you on Calvary what you couldn't do for yourself. He fought a spiritual battle that you couldn't have fought and you couldn't have won, but He fought it and He won it for His glory and for your good. We see a divine intervention, but we see a defeated enemy. There was a verse that came to my mind as I thought about this, and I I jotted down the reference because you imagine the surprise on the Syrians' faces, or the, the lepers' faces. They get there and they're expecting an entire army. They get there, they're expecting the hillside to be lit up with torches and campfires. And they get there and all is silent. There's nothing there. The enemy had already been defeated. And I thought of this verse in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 14. The Bible says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus Christ, he also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know what that's saying? That's saying for the believer, death is a defeated enemy, is a defeated foe. That's saying that for the believer, death is nothing but a bunch of empty tents and cold campfires. The divine wind from heaven, the Son of God, has already blown through death's door and defeated him and took his scepter and broke his crown and strapped him to his chariot and rode back to heaven a victor. He's a defeated foe. And when you face him, Christ has already won the victory. We see in this passage a defeated enemy. We find an unbelievable problem or an unbelievable prospect. But I want you to notice the unearned prosperity that they gained. I'm not going to dwell on it, but look what it says in verse number 8. It says, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Now, there's a few truths here worth mentioning. One is this. We notice their safety. You, you know the, the greatest thing that happened to them on that night is the Syrians didn't kill them. Let me tell you something. God does a lot of wonderful things to us and for us. And we got a lot to praise Him for. Listen, if you've got a roof over your head when you go home and I, you've got something to praise Him for. And if you've got food on your table, you've got something to praise Him for. 
But the first and greatest thing that you never praise the Lord for is Calvary and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the greatest thing they could rejoice in was the Syrians weren't there. And the greatest thing that we can rejoice in is one day when we stand before the Lord, our sins aren't there. He's paid the price. He's made a way. We see their safety, but notice their splendor. Now, this is where it gets a little unusual. Here's why. Because there's two truths here, and they seem to conflict. But if we understand them on different planes, I think we can gain some help. One of the things we see is that not only the Syrians being gone, but all that had belonged to the Syrians was now theirs. You know, death holds a lot of mystery and a lot of fear for us. Death has a lot of terror associated with it. But isn't it unusual how when a person gets born again, now that which they feared most is sometimes that which they long for the most. That which they were so afraid of is now that which is a warm and welcome thing to them. Now that which they were terrified at the thought of, they're jubilant to think that one day when they die, they'll get to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's how the Lord works. He drives the Syrians out, and then we get to spoil their tents. But then there's another truth, I think, that is important. And stop and think about what the lepers are doing. Now, in our text, the lepers are not healed. They're still dying. And they go from tent to tent, and they grab silver and gold. Here they are. Their time is still short in this life. And when given the opportunity, they start laying up that which perisheth and fadeth away. Man, what a convicting truth to you and I. There, in the midst of their excitement, they start getting more excited about the gifts than they get about the giver. There, in the midst of their excitement, I I mean, listen, just a few moments earlier, they were just hoping to be saved from impending doom. Now they're starting to gather silver and gold. How quickly, as believers, we get our focus off of spiritual things and onto temporal things. I'm not against you having money, especially if you'll give me some. But understand that the money is not the be-all, end-all. I'm not against you having a nice car or a nice home, but understand that we're sojourners here, and this life is passing away, and we don't get to take those things with us. And so something strange happens here, and I'll close with this. One of them looks at the other and says, We do not well. Now, he probably wasn't a very popular person at that point. He says, we do not do well. Look with me at verse number 9. Then said they, one to another, we do not well. This is a day, this day is a day of good tidings. And we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. We've seen in this passage an unusual prophecy and an unsolvable problem. We've seen God swoop in with an unbelievable prospect, and now they're enjoying an unearned prosperity. But they rise to a greater plane when they embark on an unselfish pursuit concerning the news that they've just gotten. We see here that there was a debt that they owed. One of them looks at the other one and says, You know, this don't make a lot of sense what we're doing. Here we are hoarding treasures while there's people starving to death in the city. They don't have to starve to death. It's just someone has to go tell them that the enemy's been defeated. Men, we don't, we don't have to go and defeat the enemy. The enemy's already been defeated. We just have to go and tell those that are starving that the enemy's already gone. They say this day is a day of good tidings. I think that's significant. You know why? Because good tidings is literally what the word gospel means. Good news. Good tidings. 
It's almost like they said this. This day, gentlemen, is a gospel day. This day is a day where we've been redeemed. This day is a day where we've come to know the Lord. This day is a day where we've been made partakers in something greater. And so this day is a day that we ought to share that with others. Let me tell you something. It'd do you well to wake up every day and say, this day is a gospel day. This day is a day when I open my eyes in the grace and love of God. This day is a day when my sins are still forgiven. This day is a day when my hope is still sure. This day is a day when my anchor is still steadfast within the veil. This day is a day where the Lord is still on the throne, where I'm still accepted in the Beloved. This day is a gospel day, and it's a day that I need to tell others that the enemy's been defeated. This day is a gospel day. And they say this. This is interesting. They say if we wait until morning come, then some mischief will come upon us. You know how Christ taught it to us? He said, work, work, for the night is coming when no man worketh. We're not children of the night. We're children of the day. But can I remind you that the Bible says that the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. We talk a lot about it being the 11th hour. Can I remind you something? Listen, it's not almost midnight. It's almost daylight. The darkness of sin's night is about to pass. The heavens will part. The Lord Jesus is coming. That eternal day will break. And if we wait till, till the daylight comes, some mischief might fall upon us. Some mischief might. In other words, you know what they're saying? Right now we have an opportunity. So let's go tell it while there's opportunity. Right now, there's a chance. Let's go tell it while there's a chance. Right now, listen to me. Some of you, you could go out that door and you could pick up a phone and you could call your loved one that you've been praying for. There'll come a day when you can't. You better do it while you can. Some of you in this room, you fought and wrestled and argued with the Lord about getting right and living right and doing right and serving God. And you keep saying tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But you, you don't have unlimited tomorrows. You may not even have one more tomorrow. But today, you've got today. Don't wait till the daylight comes. Some mischief might come upon you. Could you imagine the tragedy? What if something had happened to those four leprous men? You ever think about it? They, these four men, were the only bearers of good news. They were the only ones that knew. If those four men had died, how many more would have died in ignorance? Not because they didn't want it, because they didn't know about it. They were the only ones that could go and tell them. They knew the truth. Let me ask you something. If you die without telling, how many will go untold? You might be the only link that that person has between the gospel and themselves. You might be, that's what they mean. If some mischief might come upon us, we might die before we have a chance to tell them. And there they'll sit in those city walls with a vanquished enemy and die of starvation. A feast just outside the gate. But they can't eat what they don't know about. How shall they hear? How shall they hear except there be a preacher? How are they going to hear? How are they going to know about it? Let me tell you something. We have this idea that everybody's so gospel-hardened. I get that. I understand what you mean. But let me tell you something. There's people all over. Oh, they've heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't know who He is. They think He's just a bunch of religion. That's what they think. 
They think it's just a bunch of nonsense. Just they, they think it's just going to mass and, and and eating a cookie or eating a cracker. They they, they think it's just a just a formality. They think it's just going to church on Easter and on Christmas. They think it's nothing but just fetters and bondage and boring. But you, you've been inside the tents. You, you you've been, you've seen, you know that the enemy's vanquished. You've tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted of the goodness of God. You've been born again. You're a first-hand witness to the grace of God. What happens if you die without telling them? We see a debt that they owed, but we see a duty that they owned. They went back and told the king's household. (laughs) They may have not been much. I don't know what they looked like. You know, we all have our perceptions, our our, our imaginations about what... But you can kind of see these four men... Just hobbling up, maybe missing an appendage, a leg, or an arm. You could imagine as they were walking up and crying, unclean, unclean, because they were bound to do so. Maybe those inside the gate said, they don't look like much. We don't even want them here. They're just another mouth to feed. They're just another burden. In an already starving city, the last thing we need is four lepers. But they just kept on coming. Even though they weren't wanted, they just kept going. Even though they weren't appreciated, they just kept going. Even though folks told them to turn back, they just kept going. Do you know why? Because they knew no matter what those people in the city thought, they needed to hear this news. Sort of like it is when you're testifying, witnessing to people. Sometimes you're not wanted. Sometimes you're not appreciated. Are you going to give up? What if they had given up? So they just kept on. They just kept on crying, just an unclean leper, but I've got good news. I'm not much, but I've got good news. I know I'm not wanted, but I've got good news. I've got good tidings. So maybe you know what you ought to do. You ought to keep going to that loved one saying, I know that it bothers you, but I've got good news. I I know that it upsets you, but I've got the gospel. I know that maybe I'm not appreciated for what I'm about to say. But I want you to know that I love you and God loves you too. And I've got good news for you. I wonder if you'll own that duty today and if you'll purpose in your heart to just be another leper, but a leper with good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.